Hello and welcome back to Bites of History with Irene Walton. I am your host, Irene Walton, and today is another two-parter because I'm just having so much fun with them. We are going to be talking about the history of Pappy Van Winkle, and if you don't know what it is, you're about to, and if you do, oh boy! Have you ever wondered how it made it to your table? Have you ever wondered how it made it to your shelf? If you love food. This is the show for you, Bites of History with Irene. So in this first part, I'm going to be telling you about the history of Pappy Van Winkle, which is a legendary Kentucky bourbon brand that has a crazy history. And in part two, I'm going to be telling you about some of the insane controversies and heists and craziness that has gone on with this very legendary bourbon brand. So let's start at the beginning and we will end at the end. And we're going to be talking about where Pappy Van Winkle came from, what happened to it, and how it got to the popularity it's at today. I want to thank all of my patrons for joining the little community that we have on Patreon at patreon.com slash Irene Walton. Thank you guys so much for being there. I... I'm so, so appreciative, and it really does mean a lot. So thank you so much. And for all of my sources, thank you as well. I first, first found out about Pappy Van Winkle and the craziness surrounding it through the Criminal Podcast, which I think I've talked about on here before. It's one of my favorite podcasts of all time. It's hosted by Phoebe Judge. Phoebe Judge? I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Criminal. Yes, Phoebe Judge. She's amazing. Um, She also hosts another podcast I love called This Is Love. But I found out about Pappy Van Winkle and the controversy of Pappygate through the criminal podcast. That was a lot for you to tell you one thing. I got some of my sources from buffalotracedistillery.com, whiskeyuniv.com, and wikipedia.org. Some of the stuff that's going to come in next week, I have other sources, but we'll talk about those next week. So I want to start with a quote that has carried the Pappy Van Winkle bourbon line just like throughout history. I think it's a very powerful quote and it's something that means a lot to me. Um, It says, and this is quoted from Julian P. Pappy Van Winkle, who was the beginning of this bourbon. Um, We make fine bourbon at a profit if we can, at a loss if we must, but always fine bourbon. And that just really speaks to me. I think in a world of so much stuff, so much food, so much drink, so much consumerism, so much shopping, so much, so many clothes, so much, so many things. Um, having the mission statement of your company be like, it's just got to be good. I don't care if we lose money. I don't care if we make money. I'd like it to be good. And that all starts with Julian Prentice Van Winkle. Julian Prentice Van Winkle was born in Danville, Kentucky in 1874. The Van Winkle family had actually emigrated to the United States in the 1600s. And in the late 1700s, Julian's grandfather, Abraham, moved to Kentucky. And Abraham had Julian's father named John, who was a lawyer and did very, very well. And he married Miss Louise Dillon, and they have seven kids. They have six sons and one daughter. And one of those sons is Julian Prentice Van Winkle. Now from Danville, Kentucky, Julian moves to Louisville, Kentucky, Uh, when he's about 18 or 19 years old. And Louisville had just started to build its reputation as like a whiskey town that was like becoming the thing that they made and were getting famous for. And so Julian, you know, like freshly 18, 19 years old, he needs a job. He just moved to a new city and he gets a job as a traveling salesman for the W and L 
Weller and Sons distillery and liquor distributors. So he would get in his like little horse and buggy and he would take the alcohol from WL, WL Weller and Sons distillery and, um, and distributors. And he would sell this alcohol all along Kentucky and Indiana in his little horse and buggy. So he got really into the like liquor process and the making and the distilling and the selling. Obviously, that's what he was doing. But he became much more interested in it. In 1904, by the time he's 29, he marries his wife, Katie, and they have two kids, Mary and Julian Jr. So then it's 1909 and William Weller, who was the owner and operator of W&L, W.L. Weller and Sons Distillery, um, he passes away. Now, Julian and his co-worker, Alex Farnsley, actually acquire the W&L Weller and Sons <laughs> Distillery and Distributors. And in addition to that, after they've acquired that company, they buy a P.H. Steitzel Distiller in Shively, Kentucky. Now, the reason they purchased this uh, distillery was because this is where W&L Weller and Sons, W.L. Weller and Sons um, distributors were getting their whiskey. So they were purchasing from Stitzel, Old Fitzgerald, Old W.L. Weller, Cabin Still, Mammoth Cave, and Old Rip Van Winkle. Now, at this time, this had no relation to Pappy Van Winkle. It just so happened to be the name from the Washington Irving Children's Stories, Rip Van Winkle. So Julian and his coworker, Alex, who purchased the distilleries and the distributors and stuff, they merged the two. So they now have Weller and Stitzel Distillery. I'm sorry, Stitzel and Weller Distillery. Now, what was super interesting was that this was all happening during the Prohibition. And if you would like, we can absolutely do a whole episode or a couple series of episodes about the Prohibition because it was cuckoo, crazy, banana town, USA, population, everyone in 1920. <laughs> um, but this went on, the Prohibition went on from 1920 to 1933. Now, this is right when, you know, uh, Julian and Alex are kind of like, getting their feet on the ground as a distillery and all of a sudden, oh, whoops, you can't be making alcohol anymore. However, there was a lottery where six distilleries in the United States could make um, liquor for medicinal, if you're just listening to the podcast, I'm putting big air quotes around that, medicinal purposes. Because back in the 20s and early 30s, they thought that alcohol had some medicinal properties, which some of it did. Um, but most of the time, these medicinal distilleries were still doing some stuff on the side because of prohibition, but that's a whole other story for a whole other episode. Anyway, they, the, the Stitzel and Weller distillery win one of these lottery tickets of, as being the six, one of the six distilleries that can make liquor. Anyway, by 1933, the prohibition is over, so it doesn't even, it's not a concern anymore. By 1935, Derby Day, which is a big deal in Kentucky, Kentucky Derby, um, Stitzel and Weller is open and ready for business. Now, they become very well known locally for their weeded bourbon. Now, normally bourbon is made, it has to be at least 51% corn, and a lot of the times the other grain in there is rye, like for, you know, rye, like rye bread, rye flour. Um, what was interesting about what 
Julian Van Winkle was doing was that he was using wheat instead of rye. So this resulted in a much sweeter, a much smoother bourbon whiskey that people really liked. Now, Julian Pappy Van Winkle passes away in 1965 at the age of 91. He was actually still incredibly involved in the production of Pappy Van Winkle and of the bourbon at the Stitzel and Weller Distillery up until the age of about 89, which where he was actually the oldest distiller in America at the time. By 1965, though, when he passes away, bourbon had actually become like a little less common of a drink. Like people sort of thought of it as like an old man's drink or like, oh, my grandparents used to drink bourbon or like, oh, that's kind of a cheap drink, whatever. People were not as in favor of bourbon as they used to be. Now, before Pappy passed away in 1965, his son Julian Jr. had taken over. But obviously, when Pappy passes away, it is now all on Julian Jr. to continue running the company. Now, in 1972, Julian Jr. actually has to sell the company, has to sell the rights to Pappy Van Winkle and the other liquors that they were distributing. And... He keeps the rights to one. He keeps the rights to old Van Winkle. And what he did was he started taking from the old whiskey stocks because whiskey is like an aged spirit. So it's like, you know, you don't just like make whiskey today and have it tomorrow. Like a lot of these are aged for many, many years. Pappy Van Winkle in particular uh, is either aged for 15, 20 or 23 years. So they did have a lot of backstock of this old Van Winkle bourbon. And Julian Jr. started selling these and... It was going pretty well. The timeline here, I will be honest, in all of the research that I did is a little finicky. I couldn't exactly tell what happened during the interim of Julian Jr. selling the company and like starting to sell the bourbon that he saw the rights to. I couldn't quite figure that out. But honestly, at least from my perspective, that's not what's most important. What's super interesting and important is coming up right now. So Julian III takes over the company in 1981. And my understanding is that it's doing okay. It's nothing super special, super crazy. Now, again, this is part of that like grayish area of the story. It's actually the the Van Winkles are very, very, very private. And obviously this history is like public record, but it is kind of hard to find out where the Van Winkle was kept during these like tricky transitional periods. But basically, Julian III and his son Preston are now running uh, Pappy Van Winkle and the distilling of it because it's still that old Van Winkle that they had the rights for that they're still doing and processing the ones that were made 20 years ago and and also making new ones to sell in 20 years (laughs) Now, this bourbon was great and a lot of people liked it. This was like the 1980s. Uh, Julian III and Preston take over and Julian III takes over in 1981. Preston comes and joins the company. They're still the two running the company, which I think is very sweet that it's like such a family operation. But we'll get into that very soon. Anyway, the bourbon is super popular locally and people love it. It's great. But it's not like this crazy acclaimed unbelievable impossible to get thing it's just like really good bourbon that's you know at a higher price point but it's not like super exclusive and like i mentioned before there are the there are the three types of pappy there's 15 year 20 year and 23 year and obviously 
with that eight year discrepancy in between, the price point will get higher for the 23 and a little bit lower for the 15. But still, it's a it's a it's a it's an investment bottle for sure, even at this time, even in the 80s, because because there's simply just not that much of it. You know, like Pappy Van Winkle was making it or uh, Julian Jr. was making it 20 years ago and he didn't know how much to make for 20 years from now. So the, the stock is always relatively limited. And then in 1996, something huge happens for the Pappy Van Winkle bourbon brand. The Beverage Tasting Institute has a guide that they put out with like all of the best spirits, the best things in the world. It's like the ultimate guide for what to drink. And in this, for their bourbon, they rate Pappy Van Winkle a 99 out of 100, which is the highest number that a bourbon has ever received ever forever. So people start being like, oh, my God, we've been sleeping on this amazing bourbon. We have to go try it. And again, that stock is pretty limited. So the supply and demand factor is kind of fluctuating a bit. Then there are all these celebrity chefs that start hearing about it and talking about it and singing its Pappy's praises. Like Anthony Bourdain says that it's like the best bourbon ever. David Chang loves Pappy Van Winkle. You start seeing it peppered in culture, in like, you know, early millennial culture, like early 2000s, late 1990s. It's being drank at Stanley Cup celebrations. It's being drank by celebrities. It's like very, very exclusive, fancy, expensive, expensive bourbon. And as popularity grew and supply stayed the same, it got even trickier to get. It got even more expensive. There started to be like a secondary market for it, like a reselling market for Pappy at heavily increased prices. And that's where I'm going to leave you today because next episode we talk about Pappy Gate and just some crazy controversies around this incredibly popular bourbon. If you are wondering if I have ever had it, no, I haven't, but I really want to try it. I do love bourbon. So I need to, if anybody out there is listening to this episode and knows where I could try it in Los Angeles, I would love to hear it. I will see you guys next week when we talk about Pappy Gate. I love you. Goodbye.